St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. Take a second and check out the announcements in the back of the bulletin. There's a senior high youth activity coming up this Saturday. There's a junior high youth activity coming up Sunday afternoon. If you want more information about that, you can check on our website. Also, if you get a chance, look at the Mercy Ministries announcement from Shanna that's on the back there as well. And as always, a Zoom Bible study today at 1130, Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. If you want more information about that, uh, you can email me or call me. Okay, stand with me if you would, and let's begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you, because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm is from Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 55, and there's a principle in here I want to point out to you when we get there. It has directly connected to the gospel reading. I think that's probably why this Old Testament reading is paired up with the gospel reading for the day, and that's the principle of the way that we think about the world is not the way that God thinks about the world. The way that we see reality is not the way that God sees reality. Isaiah says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 20th chapter. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, and we met that term denarius last week, it's a Roman coin, it's the average pay for a day worker. So uh, like, the, like what Jesus is saying here, the, the master of the vineyard agrees, I'll pay you a denarius for a day's worth of work. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, uh, sorry, let me interrupt myself again. Uh, no wristwatches back in the day, right? Uh, how did they tell time? It was real rough. It was the, the Jews typically told time in rough hours from the sunrise. 
So the third hour would be about the third hour since the sun rose, mid-morning. Sixth hour is going to be top of the day around noon. Ninth hour is mid-afternoon. We're going to see the 11th hour here in a minute, and that's about an hour before sunsets. So it's real rough. Uh, verse, where was that? Uh, verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the gospel of the Lord. So the last will be first and the first last. And you don't see this in your reading today, but that's actually the very last line of the text right before this one. So this is the beginning of Matthew 20. Very last verse of Matthew 19 is the exact same thing. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus is telling this story to illustrate this kingdom principle that many who are last will be first and many who are first will be last. Did I say that right? So let's go back and look at the end of chapter 19 to see what provoked this. You know, what, what was the conversation that caused Jesus to uh, tell this parable and to make this uh, statement of this principle? And it goes like this. They're having this conversation. We don't want to go too far back because we could go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew if we really wanted to set the context. They're having this conversation where Jesus says in this conversation, man, it is really, really hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus is talking about idolatry. And so once you find an idol that you think is like really going to serve you and make you happy, it's hard to abandon that idol for the sake of the kingdom which makes no promises about making you happy. And so Peter, the, the disciples are like, whoa, well then who can get into the kingdom? Because in the Jewish mindset, if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, this is behind the song, uh, if, I, if I Were a Rich Man. In the Jewish mindset, like having lots of money means that you've been blessed by God somehow, that you've done something right or that God has shown favor to you. And uh, so a poor person, obviously, it would be harder for them to be close to God than it would be for a rich person. And Jesus says, uh, no, that's not the way it is. And he explains it. And then Peter says, or one of them says, uh, well, then who can, get into, you know, who, can get, who can get into the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, actually, with God, all things are possible. So even the biggest idols, an idol like money, is God can overcome that idol and bring people into the kingdom. And then Peter's like, wait a minute, I got a question. What about us? Because we've abandoned everything for you. We've given up our jobs, our careers. We've turned our backs on our, you know, our hometowns. We're traipsing around the countryside just following you. Like, 
what are we going to get at the end? And Jesus says to them, um, well, Pete, I'll, let me, I'll just quote what Peter says because it's better than what I just said. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. All right, uh, this is uh, good stuff. This is a Romans 8 principle, right? When, when uh, uh, Jesus takes to himself all of creation as its acknowledged Lord, his children will be heirs with him of all things and will get everything. Everything that, the, everything that people give up for the kingdom of God will be returned back to them and a hundredfold, Jesus says, in the new creation. However, many, he says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. You don't think that you know what that means. Don't think that because the new creation promises come with this promise that you'll be the heir of all things, that you know exactly what that means. That that, 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 that means infinite blessings uh, here in this present life. Political power, glory, money. It, it, what you think it means might mean the opposite. And what you think the opposite is might be the reality. And then he tells this story to illustrate it. This is a hard principle to get because you and I, all of us, as Westerners, we see the workings of the world through these primary lenses that seem to make sense. And we want to filter everything through these lenses to try to make sense. And this is not one of those lenses. I'll be honest with you, like studying this, it's not the first time I've come to this parable and thought, I don't know if I really get it. It's hard to like compute what this means actually in reality. Let me tell you what I mean. There's a couple of big primary lenses through which you and I are tempted to see the world that Jesus challenges in this parable. And then he offers us another lens that's the right lens through which to see the world. So the first lens that we want to see the world through, but it's challenged here, is the lens of fairness. Equality. We want things to be fair. We like our God to be fair. We like our relationships to be fair. We like everything to be equal. This is the problem. You know, the, the, the problem here is that, the, is that the, the first workers, the early workers, get to the pay and they're like, this isn't fair. It's not fair that we worked much longer than them. We worked 12 hours and we worked in the heat. We worked in the worst part of the day, they say. And these people who worked in the one cool hour of the evening get the same thing. It's not, it's not fair. It's not just. Well, you know what else isn't just, and this is going to get us a little bit closer to the problem of, of equity and fairness, is the people who stood around all day. So these are itinerant laborers. You know, typically back in the day, if, you, know, you could be working for a farm. It could be your, your uh, father, your grandfather's farm, in which case you had a steady job. Every morning you were going to get up and work on the farm. You could have worked for your father who made shoes, and every morning you'd get up and you'd make shoes. Some people didn't have that sort of uh, security, and so they were itinerant. They, they would go uh, here, like here in this story, they would go to the marketplace, and they would look for somebody who needed them for uh, periodic labor and hope that they got it because there's no sort of like social security, there, there's no sort of like safety net for them socially or economically in this culture. If you did not work, you weren't going to eat. 
So these guys, what about the guys who've been uh, in the marketplace all day? And you know, you're tempted to think, the master's tempted, he goes there and he says to them, he says, why are you standing here idle all day? And there's almost, the flavor of that is like, what are you, lazy? Like, what are you just hanging around the marketplace for? And they answer him and they say in verse uh, seven, because no one's hired us. We wanna work, we've been here, we need to work. We need that money. But nobody hired us. And that's also, that, that's also not fair. See, so here's the thing about fairness is it just doesn't exist. Real genuine fairness doesn't exist because of the theological principle of incurvatus se, which is a fancy Latin word that means that since the fall, we're all turned in on ourselves. We all, my fairness is quite possibly your unfairness. Like I was, my, my first job out of college was teaching, teaching at the school where my, actually where my uh, dad taught. And I taught English and I coached the uh, varsity basketball team. And it wasn't long before I realized that you could not treat everybody the same on the basketball team. Some people were motivated by, you know, just a pull aside and a quiet word of encouragement. Some people were not going to listen to you unless you raised your voice. Same thing in the classroom. Some students needed to be sitting in certain parts of the classroom. Some students needed to be sitting up front. Some students did way better if they sat in the back for whatever reason. Some students needed, like, uh, let's take it easy tonight, you know, and just do half the homework. And some students needed to be like, let's give, let's give you some extra to push you. And for me, in my mind as a teacher, that was fair. Like, I wanted everybody to learn. I wanted the basketball team to win. And so I, I needed everybody to be working together. But you see what that meant in the mind of my players or the students. It looked like unfairness. Why does that person get their homework taken away, but I have to do double? Why? I'm, I made the same bonehead mistake that he made, but you didn't yell at him. That sort of thing. So, see, for my fairness, my notion of fairness was purely my own. I mean, I was in charge, of course, so that was what, was gonna go, what we were going to go with, right? But I mean, it doesn't mean it was right. My fairness was their unfairness. And same thing, you know, for, for those of you who've had kids, and a little word of warning for those of you who will, you know that you can't treat your kids in the exact same way. Right? They, there are certain things that work with some kids. And, and you do that on the basis of fairness, but it's your own notion of fairness, but it won't be their notion of fairness. If I, do, if I do something nice for one of my kids who's had a real bad week, I guarantee you that the other two don't care that that one's had a bad week. They want the same thing that they got, right? And I've got, I've got one kid who is just desperate about fairness, who like will crouch down to look at the glasses of soda lined up on the table to see which one has the most in it, right? Now see, that kid's notion of fairness is different than the other kid's notion. of That kid, if that kid managed to get a little bit more soda in their glass, they don't say, hey, wait a minute, it's unfair. Let me give some of mine to them. Fairness works for them when it benefits them. When it doesn't benefit them, then, then they cry out, this is unfair. You know, fairness isn't at play at that point. Fairness just doesn't work. It just doesn't work because it's strictly, it's strictly personal. So, so what does this mean for the story here? Who gets to decide what fairness is? I don't get to decide what fairness is in my life. I'd like to. I'd like to be able to say, God, this isn't fair. Or God, I'll take that, that's fair. But actually there's only one standard of fairness. And, and the problem with me wanting everything to be fair is that it's my own definition, which is skewered by my own sinful self-absorption. So, so fairness is just not gonna work. Fairness, is, fairness and equity is not the, now the Bible teaches 
fairness and equity. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. But it is not to be, the, since, since you can't make it a controlling principle, we are, to, we are to behave as equitably as possible. As possible. But since I can't be capital F fair, since I'm not God, I can't make it a controlling principle. I can't make it the determinative factor in how I see how everything in the world works. You know, it's, well, let me get, I'll, give, I'll give you some examples here in a minute. Let me move on to the second one here. The second one is, well, actually, just let, let, let's listen to the, what this guy says in verse 12. The, the guy's complaining. He says, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Can you see what he's saying there? He's actually not, behind the mask of that's not fair, is the complaint, I worked harder than them, and so I deserve more than them. Even though I agreed with you, about one denarius, I actually deserve more because I worked harder. This is the second bad filter through which to see the world, the filter of merit. So we shouldn't see the world's workings. In the kingdom of God economy, we should not see the world's workings through the lens of fairness, but also through the lens of merit. Those who work more or those who work smarter or those who work harder deserve more. than This is why Jesus says to Peter, look, I'm telling you, you've given up everything to follow me. I'm gonna take care of you. But don't imagine that you know what that looks like. It could look like dying alongside of me. Don't, don't, don't pretend like you understand what that means. You cannot see the world through the lens of merit. I've told you guys this story before. Maybe some of you haven't heard it, those of you who are newcomers. So I, I am actually, in, in a past life, am a failed pastor. I was fired from a church and um, for, um, they ran out of money. And when I was fired from that church, I bottomed out and uh, just really sort of destroyed my life and my family's life. The, the sort of like the catalyst for that whole thing, you know, rebelling against God was this sense. In every commentary I read this week, almost, well, I shouldn't say every, almost all of them said, this is like a church worker thing. The catalyst was, like, I had spent years, like, doing stuff for God. Like, God, I studied my Bible all day. I prayed. Like, I ministered to the people in my Baptist church. And you're going to pay me back by firing me? That's what I'm going to get? Like, I did all this work. I know people in my church who don't like, I, I've got to beg them to read their Bibles. I have to go to their house and beg them to come to church. And they're happy, and they're healthy, and they're wealthy. And here I am, my wife is pregnant, and I've just been fired. This sense, somebody, I get paid to study this parable, right? I mean, the sense, though, that I do things for God, he does things for me, that's the way it works. And that's actually the way, that's my, that's my default mode for thinking about all my relationships. I think about them transactionally. I put stuff in, and I got to get stuff out. Like, I put stuff into the marriage, I need stuff back from the spouse. I put stuff into the kids, I need something back from them. I put stuff into my work, I need a profit or a pay raise next year. I put stuff into this, like, I, I put stuff into this class, I need good grades out of this. And thinking, thinking of relationships, especially God relationship, we'll get to that in a second. Thinking of relationships transactionally is going to doom that relationship. The minute that you do not love your spouse for who that spouse is, self-sacrificially, and the minute you turn that into a transaction where I will merit a good marriage by me being a good spouse. Your marriage is doomed. Not doomed, that's too strong. 
Marriages can come back from anything. The minute that you invest in your kids, anybody who's like, you remember this, like your first kid, you were like, oh man, I want this kid, and I'm gonna be so happy. And then you realize, you know, that actually this kid is just eating me up. You know, time, energy, like emotions, my thoughts, and really not giving me a whole lot back here. You know, they grow older, and every once in a while you get a little something here and there. But mainly parenting is, you know, one long sucking you dry. And you're pouring yourself, and this is the way it's supposed to be, right? That kid can never love you the way you love that kid. That kid's gonna love your grandkids the way that you love that kid. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But if you think of it transactionally, this is why people walk out on their families. And maybe not as bad as that. This is why people kind of turn their kids off when they get a little bit older. Why parents become distant from their kids because you're, you're, you think of relationships transactionally. And this is not the way the world's supposed to work because the world does not work on the basis of merit. It just doesn't work like that. Especially, right, especially God relationship. You cannot put God in your debt. There's no way that you can pray so much or read your Bible so much or do so many good works or come to church so much that God has to do what you want him to do because the last will be first and the first will be last and you never know what God's gonna do. Now, let me, let me tie these things together if I can real quick and then we'll move on to the third option, which is the, the biblical option here that Jesus is offering us in the parable. All right, so two things. One is that we, we want fairness and we want merit but we want them at different times. We want them both. Like when we've sort of like failed, when we're kind of in the hole, then we're like, God, this is not fair. Like, help me out. Or, hey, hey, this is not fair at work. When we've succeeded and when we're on top of the world, then we want justice for what we've earned. You see the problem with that? Both of those are so self-absorbed. We don't want fairness when we're on top, but we don't want merit when we're on the bottom. And that should be a sure sign to us that somewhere, the determinative factor of how we see the world, either through merit or fairness, is ourselves. It's an idol issue. Here's the second thing. Let me just point out to you that both merit and fairness are in themselves good qualities. The Bible says that we should be fair. Do unto others as you would have them to do, have them do unto you. The Bible also says that, that merit is an issue. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that those that don't work shouldn't eat. There's a sense in which God has called us to work, to, to earn the bread on our table. But by the way, you know, fairness, both of these are good things. Fairness is a quality that the left really likes. Merit is a quality that the right really likes. But what I'm going to encourage you to do is to keep both of them as biblical principles, but not determinative because neither one of those, because they're turned in on ourselves, and we use those to excuse or accuse ourselves, neither one of those is able to do Neither one of those is able to function as a legit lens through which to see reality as the third option is here, and that option is grace. The option that God wants us to see the way the world works, the way our relationships work, the way the kingdom works, the way that you can cope with this last becoming first and the first becoming last is grace. Now, there's two things we need to know in this text about grace if we're going to get it. Both of them, one of them good, one of them bad, put them together, difficult. All right. The first thing is this. God does, first principle of grace, God does whatever he wants to do. You can't put God in your debt. You can't make him do what you and I want him to do. He does whatever he wants to do. This is what he actually, this is what the master actually says at first line of verse 15. He says to the people who are complaining, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? I can do what I want with this creation that I made, God says. This is a principle, it's not any fun. 
It's a Romans, it's a Romans 9 principle, right? Paul raises the question, how can God find fault with people that he made and designed? And Paul's answer is kind of a non-answer. Who are you, O oh man, to question God? Can the piece of pottery say to the potter, why did you make me like this? You know, implied answer, no. God, God has given us what he's given us. He's made us who he's made us. The circumstances of our life are, are such that he, are, are the circumstances that he's orchestrated. And we, as the pieces of pottery, are not allowed to say to the potter, oh, you, you screwed this one up. God does. He's sovereign. He gets to do what he wants to do because the whole thing is his game. But don't ever believe in that without believing in point number two, that God is always good. There's three ways that, that this parable describes the goodness, the eternal goodness of God, you know, pictured in the master here. And the first is, is that the master is always kind. Here we are in the parable, here we are complaining at him, you know, on the basis of our merit, you, you know, we're the, you know, we worked all day long and out in the scorching heat, and now, now we're not the first, now we're the last. And, you know, God, what's up with that? And here's what he says. And check this out in verse, um, lost my place, verse 13. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. That word friend there is really gentle. It's not a word that pops up. It's not a word that Jesus uses a lot in his parables. A friend, the guy is not, this is not, this is not one of those depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You know, it's, it's not one of those instances. It's, I've loved you. You've been my friend. I need you to know, God says, that what I've done, I've done out of friendship to you. I've done because I want to do good to you. That's the first of the three principles here of God being good is that he is always our friend. He's always kind. The second thing is this. God is always generous. Look back at verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? God is generous. In this culture here, where these people need this denarius in order for their families to eat that day. Everybody gets a denarius. The people who worked get a denarius. They got a job. The people who didn't work until the end because they, nobody hired them, they also get a denarius. Who are we to complain about generosity? So one of the things, you know, I want to tell my kids who complain about fairness is, you're upset with me because I'm doing something nice for somebody? That seems backwards. Of course, I'm the same way, right? Like if I, see, if I see somebody get praised for something I wish I was getting praised for, it's hard to be happy for them. You know, if, if I see somebody get, getting blamed for something that I could possibly blame for, it's real easy to be like, oh yeah, yeah, too bad. This is, this, this uh, but, but our God though is always generous. What he gives us is always good. It, it, it would be very, very sad of us to begrudge him this goodness, this eternal goodness that he owes. So he's always kind, he's always generous, and then finally, he always does what's right. Look at the verse four. He's telling, he doesn't barter with the people who go out. He, he meets them at nine o'clock, mid-morning. He doesn't barter with them and say, let's make a deal for how much you work with. He just says to them, basically, I want you to trust me in verse four. You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now in their mind, maybe they're thinking what's right is three-fourths of a denarius. But what's right for God is the whole denarius. What's right for God is kindness and love and compassion. God does all of these things. God does everything, God does everything that he wants, but he does it all out of goodness. 
These two truths. Now, so here's a question then. What about the bad things that are happening to you? What about sickness? What about relational brokenness? What about fractured family uh, ties? If God is doing those things, how can we call those good? Now we're getting to the point of the parable, which is really hard to get. Whatever God does is good. And so we have to learn to embrace that. We have to learn to embrace his sovereignty and his goodness simultaneously. We have to learn to see the world through the lens of not fairness or not merit, but of his grace and to trust him for it. Whatever God does is right. I'm going to give you a great line here. This is the best line in the whole sermon. It's not mine. It comes from Tim Keller. But this is worth writing down. But this is hard to believe, but it's actually what the point of the parable is. And the line goes like this. If you knew what God knows, you would ask exactly for what he's given you. It's a hard thing to believe when you're going through bad times. And you're like, God, you're not being fair. Or God, I don't deserve this, you know, fairness or or merit. But the fact is, if you knew what God knew, if you had his infinite wisdom and knowledge, if you had his infinite love for you, the thing that you would pray for is exactly what he's giving you in that moment. Because he's sovereign, completely in control. But he's always good. And part of Christian faith is learning to live in this sovereign goodness. Learning to trust that I might have thought I was first, but now I'm last. I might have thought I was last, but now I'm first. But in any case, I am in his, I'm, I'm in his kingdom. I'm in his care. I am headed toward, in Jesus Christ, toward his new creation. Look, here's the thing. Some of you, there are, there are some people who are the best spouses in the world who have failed marriages. Some of you have done everything right as a parent. I'm exaggerating for effect. You've done everything right as a parent, and yet your kids have not turned out the way that you want them to. You have worked as hard as you can at your job, and you've been passed behind for promotions. You have slaved yourself for that class, and the grade you got is not the grade that you thought you were going to get. And the temptation is to say, God, this isn't fair, or God, this isn't right. And what God wants you to see is that in Jesus Christ, he is lovingly guiding and orchestrating and choreographing every single step of your life. This does not mean that you shouldn't be fair yourself or you shouldn't be just yourself or you shouldn't work hard yourself. But it does mean that he's completely in control and his grace is going to win in the end. It's winning even now whether we see it or not. Okay, so before I let you go, let me say this uh, one word about, it's gonna be hard for us. You know, me talking to you for 25 minutes is not going to get us, any of us, to stop seeing the world through equality or through merit. So let me, let me point you, uh, keep on pointing you towards Jesus and then I'm gonna let you go with this. Okay, so let's, what is, what is fairness? What is ultimately, what should be our standard for fairness? Let's make it this. The one who in all fairness deserves all the money in the world and all the glory in the world and all the praise in the world unfairly was lynched for me and you, so that we could get what unfairly we don't deserve. He turned fairness on its head. He made his own life unfair so that we could have the unfair glory and riches and infinite ease and infinite pleasure in him and especially in the new creation. Ultimately, fairness has no meaning unless you see it through the lens of the cross. That fairness is ultimately God himself taking on all the unfairness in the world so that we could, this is what grace and mercy mean, right? Mercy is us unfairly 
not getting what we really deserved. Grace is us unfairly getting what we didn't deserve. And that only happens because he unfairly died for us. What about merit? Well, yeah, you guys know, most of you know where I'm gonna go with this, right? Like, what, what is, who deserves what? Like, I might think that I, like, I just poured myself into this marriage and why isn't my marriage? I actually didn't pour myself into this marriage. I'm too selfish for that. I might think I worked so hard at this job and now things aren't going the way I want to and I'm behind on my payments. No, actually, I'm not the worker that I think I am. I like to think of myself as like this Paul Bunyan character at work. I'm not. I'm lazy. I make mistakes and then I blame them on other people. What about like my parenting? Like I'm just the best. I've done everything. No, I haven't done everything right. I don't deserve my kids to turn out well. I don't deserve this church to be a good church because I've not done a great job pastoring it. I don't deserve for you guys to be nice to me because I've not been a great friend. I don't deserve for my marriage to be a good marriage because I know for a fact I don't pour goodness into it. I pour my own selfishness into it. The only one who deserves all the good things in the world is Jesus. And he gave up all those so that you and I could get what we don't deserve. The only lens through which you and I should see merit is the lens of grace. That the good things in the world are ours even though we didn't deserve them, even though we didn't merit them because he merited them for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us to see our lives and the lives of our uh, church here and the lives of our communities and the lives of our families. Help us to see them through the lens, not of merit, not of equality. Help us to see them through the lens of your grace, the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Please stand and we'll continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father, uh, we continue in prayer now, and I just want to uh, confess before you again, as I, I think I mentioned in the sermon, that like, I don't, I, I study this passage. This is not the first time I've studied this passage, and not the first time that I've walked away thinking, I'm not really sure how I'm going to do this. I don't know how to live this out. I can't get out of the mindset of like wanting fairness when I'm a screw up and wanting justness when I th- justice when I think I've deserved it. God, I. I don't lean on your grace like I should. I don't trust in you for your kingdom choreography. Father, open my eyes to your glory, the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and help me to see my work, my relationships with you and with others, especially my family and my friends and my church members. Help me to see it all through the lens of this grace that you've given us, this sovereign goodness that you pour out on us every day. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray this morning you would be with everyone who's uh, suffering and struggling, and there's so many of us who are fighting, uh, fighting for relationships right now, uh, struggling in broken relationships, um, uh, fighting for uh, financial security, uh, fighting for good health, fighting to beat off a disease. God, help all of us, fighting grief, help all of us, Lord, to turn to you and to realize your resurrection power to fix all these things in your sovereign but good timing. Father, I want to pray especially this morning that you would be with uh, the family of Evelyn who passed away this week and was buried yesterday, Debbie's mom, Joe and Annie's uh, grandmother, that you would give that family hope and comfort in her relationship with you, hope and comfort in the final resurrection where because of your son's resurrection, she is guaranteed to rise on the last day. I also pray that you'd be with Norval, who uh, broke his leg this past week and is in the hospital now and is 
wishing uh, desperately that he wasn't, that he was back home and is in a lot of pain and uh, struggling with the prospect of a long road of rehab, especially at his age. Lord, that you would give him physical strength, that you would help that leg to heal, but most of all, that you would give him mental calm and comfort, trusting you. It's just so hard to pray for somebody else, Father, but he would trust you, that you in your sovereign goodness have worked this for your glory and for his good. And help him to take away the pain and help him to bounce back quickly. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these things, we pray these prayers only because of your grace. Only because you have been good enough to include us in your family and to call us in your son, Jesus Christ, your daughters and sons. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's say the words of the Nicene Creed together as a confession of our faith in Jesus. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
知。